All right, uh, I'm going to read our uh, passages this morning. I can't, okay, I did put that one first. All right, I'm going to read from the book of Matthew and then the book of 1 Corinthians as we continue our series on the seven deadly sins. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it still speaks to us. God, we pray that we would be able to, to listen, to not just hear, but to receive, to digest, to be transformed. Father, we pray that our hearts would be moved, our minds would be clear and free, and that our lives would be shaped to reflect your image and glory. Amen. If, you, uh, if you're a visitor to, to Valley Hope, um, yes, you picked the Sunday they're talking about sex. Good choice by you. Um, you might as well uh, get comfortable hearing the word sex in this room. I know that's uh, a little uncomfortable for some people, but that's part of why we are where we are, talking about what we're talking about. You know, I uh, said, as I was doing this series, I think I said last week, man, I get to each new seven of the seven deadly sins, and I'm like, oh, yes, we definitely have a problem with this one. Well, it's good to get to one we don't have a problem with, um, which is obviously not true. Um, I, I, I'm coming up here aware of the dangers uh, on, on either side of us uh, that we, we sort of inherit from the world and from our, our history as a church. There's, uh, there's a couple ways that this conversation can go wrong. Um, for one thing, on one hand, our, our culture would tell us at the same time, sex is no big deal. Um, and you can give and receive however you see fit as often as frequently as long as nobody's hurt. And at the same time, it's the most important thing. It's the biggest deal about you uh, that you can participate in. And we have this sort of uh, 
church history, church baggage, where in a lot of ways the church has picked up on the, the language and the, the argument from the world about, about sex and has kind of just uh, repackaged it in a different way. So sometimes you'll be in churches where the discussion is entirely, uh, you should get married as soon as possible to have as much amazing sex as possible in this sort of quasi-celebration, which itself is actually borrowing from the ethic of the world, saying how important sex is. It's also, you know, just a little bit of fabrication that's not exactly how it works. Um, for most married people. Or we talk about sex within the church as this deeply shameful thing that we either try to avoid or when we discuss, we usually do so with a club in hand to beat you over the head. Complicating this even further is it's usually only talked about, this sin is usually only talked about from the perspective of, in my experience, married men. And the conversation usually goes around, guys, stop lusting. That's kind of the sum total of the, the whole conversation, which is not helpful for a number of reasons. Because although Jesus is using in his examples here in Matthew chapter 5, the language of man and woman, He's not saying the only people who deal with the sin of lust are men. And he's not saying the only people who really need to watch out about lust are married men. It is a command to everybody, men and women. And unfortunately, when, because of ways that we talk about it, people who are single by choice, single against their choice, people who are divorced, people who are brothers and sisters whose attraction is only to people of the same gender, all of these are people that get excluded from this conversation. When in reality, Jesus' commands are binding for all people. And when everybody, when this sort of vast stretch of people get left out of the discussion, we have a real problem. And so we don't want to fall off into any of these wrong directions. We want to instead let the scriptures inform us, all of us, about the life that we submit to God, which includes our sexuality. Lust is this vice, this habit of sin that is in a disordering of desire. As we talk about with all of these vices, pretty much, there are ways in which you can rightly experience these things when they're rightly ordered, and they are not sinful. Next week, we'll talk about gluttony. Food and drink are good, but a disordering of those desires is what is bad. Sexuality is not bad. God made people sexual. When he made Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, he was not surprised by their sexual life, sort of stepping back and saying, where did that come from? 
you know? This was his idea. And he made anatomical compatibility in the process of reproduction on purpose. Sexuality is not bad in and of itself. It is the disordering of sexual desire that is the problem. And that is really important. Because a lot of times it feels easier to take questions of sexual desire, sexual attraction, sexuality, to just throw them in a giant lockbox and say, if we just don't get anywhere near any of these things, we will be far safer. We don't, we'll definitely not get in trouble with any of these things. One, that doesn't work. And two, that is the logic of the Pharisee. If we draw the line further out than the line that draw, line that God draws, then we won't come close to crossing the line that God draws. And that leads you to dangerous places, often in the name of Jesus. And so it's important, it's crucial, it's vital to talk about rightly ordered sexual desire and the high call of Scripture for Christians. Look, there is no getting around the truth that we hear both from Jesus in Matthew 5 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. The Christian call to a sexual life submitted to God is very, very high. There is a very small window in which sexuality is meant to be expressed and enjoyed with another person. It is between a married man and woman. And that's it. And there are all kinds of people who would like to express all kinds of sexual behavior outside of that window. But the window remains small, such that Christians in the early Roman world are, are very strange because of the exclusivity of this, of this command. The ancient Mediterranean world was a very sexually permissive place, more so, I would say, than our culture, which is hard to imagine, but true. And Christians even then were weird in laying out this very high demand with the logic that Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is part of the work of redemption of God in the world. We do not believe in a separation from your body, an escape from your body, a mind-only, spirit-only view of salvation. What we believe is that all of you is claimed by God. And that includes this part of who we are. And Christians for 2,000 years have been saying, how do we live up to this? How do we live up to what Jesus lays out? And let me say that I think that, look, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up in evangelical churches 
charismatic churches. And I can say that growing up as a, as a young man, this conversation was mostly like in the guise of like accountability groups. You probably know what I'm talking about if you grew up in the church. Um, a lot of like, I think if I, I'm not much of a journaler. Uh, I, I, I tried it multiple times. It always failed within days. If you could find some of those old journals, I think that you would find evidence all over those pages, even if it wasn't explicit, that this vice was like the central torturing component of my spiritual life. Just deeply shameful and imprisoning. And I didn't know how to talk about it with anyone. And I think that I probably was not alone. That I, we all have this sense that, yeah, sexuality is something that I was born with, that it's there, and I can feel the evidences of it. And yet I'm not quite sure what that is meant to be. And so that... I mean, for a long time, defined where I felt I was with God. And I think probably there's plenty of people in this room that understand exactly what I'm talking about. There, there are a couple of ways to listen to and to deal with the words of Jesus and Paul, the words of God. Jesus says, it's true. There is only one venue for sexual behavior. And he doesn't just center the command, uh, which he's referencing the Ten Commandments here in his teaching. He doesn't just center the command around your physical outworking in obedience to this command. He, he elevates it. And he says it's actually even in your, in your desires and in your thinking, if you lust in your heart you have committed adultery. And there, there are a couple ways to deal with this. Jesus is wrong. Or, this is the worst thing you could possibly do. And if you've done this, you should be hidden away in your shame. And both of these things are a mistake. Now, first of all, we, I would argue, have to be very clear that we live in a place and a time culturally where it is important to pay attention to the commands of Jesus, especially regarding sexuality. Because we live in a place that uses sexuality to leverage every kind of conversation. It fuels our economy, advertisement, often centers around sexuality. It's often sexuality that is sort of the tool to get you back to the gym. If you would just go to the gym, look fitter, you'd be sexier. Everything from which beer you buy to the car that you drive, oftentimes sexuality is the lever to get you to move towards a product. And our culture is absolutely telling me and you and every one of our children, that sexuality is something that you have sole autonomy over. You have control over, and you get to decide what benefits you. And you can deal with that as a Christian by just saying, 
we can just sort of write off what Jesus says, what we hear in 1 Corinthians 6, and, and accommodate. It's different now. It's a different place. It's a different time. It's a different understanding. As long as two people are consenting, as long as people, it's a relatively healthy relationship, the definition of which gets changed and dumbed down all the time, then it is fine. And the it is fine mentality is not available to the Christian who would submit their lives to the Lordship of Jesus. Because what we are saying is sexuality is important and God, as the creator, has the right to determine how sexuality ought to be expressed and experienced. I had one of my students ask me after class one time, how is this a gift if he bosses you around and tells you what to do with it? It's a fair question. It's a good question. My response was that if I gave my children a bike, I would prohibit them from riding it in the middle of traffic. Now, from my children's perspective, who have seen me be like basically just capricious and a jerk and say no for no reason, my, my, my children might, per, might see that prohibition as just one more of those things, right? He just likes to say no to us. And I wish that were not true. Sometimes it just is. I confess this in front of my daughter. Sometimes I just want to say no for no reason. However, however, I would hope that my character has been demonstrated sufficiently. That my kids would understand. I tell them no, that they can't ride in the middle of traffic because I want them to live. Because I love them. And when Christians hear the prohibitions and the commands of Scripture around sexuality, implicit underneath that, is a belief and a trust that God is good, that what he wants for us is good, even when he seems to withhold things that we deem to be good. And that is a hard thing to trust. But it's, it's essential to the life that we are describing. Now, I can sit with people who'd struggle with the difficulty of that. Look, I, I, I have friends who say, I want to follow Jesus. And yeah, I'm attracted to people of the same gender. Why do I have to feel that I will never have an intimate relationship? How can I trust that God is being good to me? And if you can't hear the legitimacy and the heartache of that, that, that's a problem. And if your only answer is, just do better, you will crush them. When what they need to hear is, I have not experienced that same question the same way that you have. But I too have found myself trusting whether my Father in Heaven is going to be good to me. I know that is long and it is hard. And I'm so sorry. 
but I will keep telling you of the goodness of God. And I need you to keep telling me that Jesus is actually good enough to deserve that kind of obedience. Now, the other way that you can deal with Jesus' commands are to, to make a pitchfork out of them. And because sin is so serious, you double down on the language of the seriousness of sexual sin, and it is no doubt very serious. And you prod people and you poke people and you hammer people into just saying, I will control this. I remember, this is not healthy. I'm not recommending this. I remember in one of these uh, accountability scenarios, this is my cousin, who's, he was my good friend of mine. He would suggest to me, when you're struggling with lust, you should wear a rubber band around your wrist and smack your, your forearm every time because it will distract you and whatever, make you angry. I don't know. I don't think that lasted very long because, um, you know, I, I appreciate my skin and uh, I would have lost it at that point as a 14-year-old as a boy. Most people would say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to harm myself, although some people do. I'm not going to harm myself into submission here. But emotionally, rhetorically, and spiritually, I will punish my way into compliance. I have to stop the compulsive behavior. I have to stop the vice, and I will, I will harm myself until I do. And that is not the way that Jesus operates with any sin. He does not do that. Um, I, I want to tell you about uh, a, a dead guy, which is one of my favorite things to do, uh, named Augustine. Augustine um, is one of the most significant influential thinkers and writers in Western history. He's certainly one of the most important Christian philosophers and theologians. He wrote a book called Confessions. You should read it. It's really good. Um, it's, it's a kind of um, theology and, and reflection and spiritual memoir that was like way ahead of its time, um, a millennium and a half ahead of its time. And one of Augustine's real struggles was with his sexuality. He's from Carthage uh, in North Africa. He, he ended up going north into Italy, another part of the Roman Empire, and uh, pursuing a life of, of being this professional speaker, basically. And the Confessions is describing his, um, his movement from rejecting God to accepting God's grace. And... Uh, I'm going to read some parts from a new translation from somebody named Sarah Rudin. He talks in book eight about his wrestling with his sexuality. He was a very sexual person. He had a very strong sexual appetite. He acted on it all the time. It was one of the central things that kept him from obeying Jesus. He starts out this section saying, My God, let me remember in giving you thanks. Let me testify to your mercies for me. Let your love wash through my bones 
And let them say, Master, who is like you? You have broken my chains. I will offer up to you a sacrifice of praise. And he will repeatedly refer to God as his master in this passage. He says, I was an excessively wretched young man, clear from the prelude to my youth, when I actually begged you for chastity, which is rightly ordered sexual desire, by saying, give me chastity and self-restraint, but don't do it just yet. I was afraid that you'd hear my prayer quickly and quickly cure me of the disease of lust, which I preferred to have satisfied rather than nullified. She's very honest. Please, I don't even want to pray fully for what I should pray for. Like, someday deal with me with this. And he wrestled in his life, trying to sort of live this. He'd go back and forth becoming close to becoming Christian and, and he'd move far away and go back into this sort of kind of weird cultic life and also like interested in uh, the partying life and all this. He's just conflicted by his desires in his body for a lot of things, but certainly sexually. Uh, Augustine would take on a, a woman that lived with him. We don't know anything about her. They lived together uh, and had a sexual relationship. He had a son named Deodatus. He said, even while eternity offers a higher thrill, the pleasure of what is good in this world of time maintains its lower grip. It's the same soul wanting one thing or the other, but neither of them with the whole will. And that's why the soul is pulled to pieces with harsh distress. While it puts first what it knows is the truth, it still doesn't put away what it knows conveniently. I was sick and suffering horrendously accusing myself more fiercely or excessively more fiercely than usual and turning and churning in my chain until the last tiny trace of it still holding me could be entirely torn off, but for now it held me nonetheless. He is twisted up in his desire, wanting what is good, but impossible to escape from his clutches. He says that the master in his cruel mercy stood ever before him beckoning him, driving him towards freedom that he could not quite grasp a hold of. And there's this instance where he is finally converted. His mother, is Monica, is praying for him as she has been forever, praying for her son to finally be free. And he is just taking this walk around the garden, conflicted and stewing. How does he give this life up? And he hears this voice of a little girl over the hedgerow here singing this song and hearing take up and read so he goes back to his friend Olympus and he's reading the book of Romans and in it is this command in Romans 13 to put away wickedness and be clothed with Christ Jesus and in that moment freedom comes in It all seems so clear to him, like a breath of fresh air for the first time, that what he needs is to be clothed in Christ. He'll go on to say, Master, I am your slave. I'm your slave and the son of your female slave. But you have torn my chains apart. I will offer up a sacrifice, the praise of you. 
Let my heart and my tongue praise you. Let all my bones say, Master, who is like you? Let them say it, and you answer me and say to my soul, I am your rescue. Augustine is, is delivered. He is human. He's not able to just like cut out sin and never have to deal with it again. But he understands that the Lord Jesus, his master, is his rescue. And his life is turned over into the hands of a rescuing master. Fundamentally, if you are like everyone who has experienced brokenness in your sexuality with lust, with behavior, with whatever it is, what you need, what I need as antidote is not the longer list of the behavior card, the more thorough accountability group, so that you can once again say how terrible of a person that you are and to be driven by fear and be driven by shame. That is not going to work. And if you are here today battling addiction to lust, to pornography, to sinful sexual behavior, and if you have sort of heard the rationale that if you would berate yourself enough, you will finally stop doing what you shouldn't and you would start doing what you should, um, you have been lied to. The, the person that wants you to accept that rationale as the voice of God is the serpent. The serpent has always wanted God's people to run and hide from God. You can see it in Genesis 3 immediately. The people are naked. They, they sin against God. And in their nakedness, they are ashamed. And what do they do? They run from each other and they hide from God. And so if your approach to battling and dealing with lust, to disordered sexual desire, is to drive deeper and deeper into the darkness of shame, you are not ever going to run towards deliverance that way. You will only run towards prison. And so I am begging you and pleading with you, if you are here today, do not listen to that voice. That voice has one intent, to murder you. It is a lie that you are hearing. There is one thing that will deliver you. And it is the power of God's love. It is open-handed, open-hearted, wide-open, generous Love. And you need to receive it because that is ultimately what your sexuality was meant to point you towards anyway. Sexuality is meant to be a symbol, a signpost to our desires to tell us again and again, you cannot satisfy yourself. That is what sexuality is telling you. The craving that you're feeling, the desiring, yes, it's biochemical. There are chemicals in your body that are triggering that and fueling it because God made you to be a physical person. But that 
biochemical reaction is only meant to point you towards a greater truth that you were not meant to be alone and you cannot satisfy yourself alone. The greatest fulfillment of that realization is that you would find that you are loved by God. That's why when Jesus speaks of the day that is coming, when you see him face to face, he says it's the end of marrying and getting married. Sexuality is a phase of human history that will be coming to an end. Because the signpost will be pointing to the one that is then right before your face. You were made to be satisfied in God. You were meant to be healed and to be delivered and to be rescued by the love of God. Here is what I think is the way forward. If you are struggling with lust, as so many of us are, What you need is not a further program. What you need is friendship. Hear me. I'm not saying that what you need, what all of us need, is marriage. Marriage is important, it is valuable, and it is a great source of friendship. I love my friendship with my wife. She is truly my best friend. I love that. But many of you, many of us, are called right now and maybe indefinitely to be single. Which is, Paul is very clear, a great gift. Something to be honored and esteemed and valued. If you are single, you are not in a holding pattern. You are not cursed. God has given you something in this season, even if you would wish this season would end very quickly. There has to be a solution that is available to all Christians, married and not. And the solution, the antidote, is friendship. We are really bad at friendship, by and large. In the church, we elevate marriage, which is, again, I am very much a fan of. But we ought always to be persistent in saying friendship is a way that God deals with, speaks to, and heals the people of God. A friend, a true friend. I'm not talking about people you just go get a beer with, you hang out with occasionally. I'm talking about people that who are really and truly recipients of the intimacy of your soul. Where you lay bare your deep need. And who can approach you and, and reveal to you as a sign, it's true. You were meant to be satisfied outside of yourself. Rebecca DeYoung says, The best advice then for resisting lust is not to get a good internet filter, although you should do that too, but to build good friendships. Good friendships teach us how to respect each other, to offer appropriate physical affection, to appreciate and care for others without looking for something in return, and to trust one another. 
Someone who knows what real love looks like, whether in a sexual relationship or not, will be less swayed by lustful pleasures as a tempting alternative. If your relationship with others and with God adequately feeds your need to love and be loved, you will both see through and despise what lust has to offer. Ultimately, we are the recipients of the words of Jesus, who in John chapter 15 turns to his disciples and calls them his friends. You were made for friendship with God. Everything that sexuality holds as a deep and true expression of what you were made for is expressed ultimately in the friendship that you find in Jesus. Yes, your body is crying out but your bodily crying out is meant to show you what your heart ought to long for. And if you are here today and you are burdened by sin and by shame, Jesus does want you to confess and to repent what is sinful, but he is not going to use the tool of shame to do it. Shame is the enemy's tool. It is not Jesus's. What he will say to you is, you ought to turn and come home so that you can be free. In this moment when you feel bound up and you are pulling against everything that seems to be leading you in a different direction, you are tired, you are exhausted, you ought to turn around and come home and stop pulling in that direction because your friend will be good to you. He loves you. And shortly after John 15 comes John 17. Shortly before John 15 comes John 13. Jesus is the high priest who prays for you. And he's the servant who washes you clean. Because he is your friend. And if you are struggling here today and you feel like God has been your enemy, your opponent, the one you are trying to hide from, you have been robbed not just by lust, but by all the deceit of the enemy. And the Father wants you to come home and to see him for who he is. If you are here today struggling with your sexuality, Jesus' words for you still apply. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I would be gentle to you when you are needy. I would be tender to you. When you are mired in your sin, would you come home and be befriended by God and his friends that everything that sexuality is pointing towards, you would find fulfilled in Jesus who will hold you now and forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your good gifts. We thank you that you free people who are pulled in lots of different directions like Augustine. We, we are Augustine's children. We confess that we have often said, I know what I should do, but I know what I want to do. And I wish this pulling in different directions would just stop. And Father, I pray that we would feel the freedom that Augustine felt. We would hear the deliverance of being clothed with Jesus. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be leaning in and receiving what our bodies are pointing towards. That we were not meant to be alone. We were not meant to be fulfilled within ourselves. We were meant for fulfillment outside of ourselves. 
God, we confess to you that lust has taught us again and again that we ought to be the masters and satisfy our own desires. We have given in to that logic time and again, and we have felt the shame that follows that sin. Would you look, look at us, O merciful master, who is our friend, and would you set us free? Father, I pray that all of those who feel caught in sin and cannot escape would today feel the deliverance of being turned over to you. And God, may our church be full of friendships that are free and open, full of the gospel, that we might again and again hear the good news from another person's lips. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness and your kindness to us, your friends. Amen.